Good evening. Let's pray. God, be with me as your witness, your Holy Spirit that bears witness of your truth and your word. May there be nothing else but that tonight going into the hearts of these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Who done it? We have this whole category of fiction and fun called the Who Done It. From Sherlock Holmes to Alfred Hitchcock to the board game Clue, we love to wonder and search and attempt to add up or simply be surprised at the revelation of Who Done It. Even in our news and our politics, the rise of conspiracy as a lens through which to interpret and view current events is a basic indulgence of this normal, ever-asked human question. Who done it? Well, please keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 5, where Harry just read from. And if you're looking for the text, you'll have it on page 859 of the Bibles in the pews. We're looking at Acts chapter 5 from verses 12 to the end of the chapter. This is the record, the nearly contemporaneous record written by Dr. Luke, a follower of Jesus, of some of the events that took place in the very first church in Jerusalem, led by Jesus' original disciples. Jesus has died and risen, and he's given his Holy Spirit to his formerly brash and cowardly disciples. And since then, they have now for some months or maybe a year or so after Jesus' resurrection, been about the public preaching and teaching of Jesus' name. They've also been performing miracles, baptizing, and bringing new members into the church. And as we saw last month, they've begun to run afoul of the religious authorities for the popular stir they are creating in Jerusalem. Now, God has placed this text from Acts 5 into our laps tonight to continue to fill out the picture of the development of the early church, to understand what they were and who they, were, who they were. And that's what we're learning. That's what we're intended to understand here. And I think in this chapter, the things that we're supposed to be seeing can be looked at as four sort of interlocking, overlapping observations out of our text. So our four observations are these. First, we observe that tragically, Christians are popular. Tragically, Christians are popular. Second, we'll observe that tragically, Christians are unpopular. Christians are unpopular. Third, we'll see that joyfully, Christians preach. Joyfully, Christians preach. And fourth, we'll see that God sovereignly saves. Sovereignly, God saves. So those are four points for this evening. Let's begin now with our first. Tragically, Christians are popular. Let's look here at our first section in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Here, Luke does a sort of status check on the church after the first year or so following the resurrection of Jesus. How is the church doing? What is it doing? And what do we find? We find the apostles are on a miracle streak. There are many signs and wonders being performed by them. 
And everyone, it seems everyone, not just those in Jerusalem, but in the surrounding towns are aware of it. These early Christians are becoming very noticeable and very popular. Now, this kind of popularity is not really good. Rather, it is quite tragic. Tragic? What's wrong with being held in high esteem by the people? Well, to understand that, we have to pick through this rather troubled translation to see how these verses actually work together here in verses 12 through 16. You may have noticed the sentences here are a little awkward, and that's because Greek is a little complicated in a way that English is not, which makes the translation here kind of hard. But here is how I think we're supposed to read these verses. And if you like, in your own copy of the scriptures, you might mark this up to clarify it. So read with me and have your pencil ready to mark. In verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now skip to verse 15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So joining the first part of verse 12 And verse 15 seems to be the intended flow of thought here. The apostles were performing so many signs and wonders. They were happening with such powerful ease, so frequently and popularly, that even Peter's passing shadow would heal the sick as he went by, and the people were clamoring for it. But in this middle section that we skipped over, starting there in in the middle of verse 12 and going through verse 14, I think we can look at this as a kind of parenthetical, explaining where all this activity is happening, who is involved and not involved, and why. So if you have your own Bible, you might actually bracket that section in parentheses. The punctuation is not inspired. So open parentheses in the middle of verse 12, and they were all gathered together, and close parentheses at the end of verse 14. That's your parenthetical. And in that section, you have these details around the extravagant healing ministry of the apostles. We see that the church was gathering in Solomon's portico. That is the same place that Peter preached his sermon in Acts chapter 3 after healing a lame man. And Peter and John were then arrested in that spot in chapter 4, right there in Solomon's portico in the temple. And joining the apostles here were the multitudes who believed, men and women joining the church and worshiping God. How many people exactly? Well, After Peter's first sermon in chapter 2, it says there were 3,000 souls added to the church. And after his second sermon in Acts 3, it says there were 5,000 men added, which we could assume means an equal number of men and women, so maybe even 10,000 additions. So as at the end of chapter 4, you've got a church of perhaps 13,000 people. And here in verse 14, we're adding a multitude to that number. So what's 13,000? plus a multitude? Well, according to my calculations, it's something that you just can't miss or ignore. Not in a walled city with only a few hundred thousand residents and visitors at a given time, and not in the temple where these believers met, the very focal point of cultural and religious activity for an intensely religious people. These Christians are unmissable. They've become a sort of elephant in the room in Jerusalem, Everyone is either talking about them or, absurdly, trying not to talk about them. But we'll come back to that. We've skipped over verse 13 in our parentheses. This is perhaps a sort of parentheses within a parentheses. 
The focus here shifts from who is in the multitudes of the church to who is not in those multitudes, who is not there. It refers to the rest and, again, to the people. We're here talking about the general population of Jerusalem. And it says they have two sort of contradictory reactions to this Jesus movement. It says, on the one hand, the people hold them, the apostles, in high esteem. They admire them. And yet, on the other hand, they dared not join them. Now, perhaps the admiration of these Christians is easier to grasp. I mean, what was there not to admire? These Christians are living exemplary exemplary lives. In April, we saw how in Acts 4, they were dedicated to sacrificial love. How amongst the early church, there was not a needy person among them. Because the believers in the church sacrificed their own wealth, even selling their possessions for the general good of others. This is admirable. And further, as we've seen, the apostles were freely healing people in the name of Jesus. Uh, the, The people saw these things not as tricks, but as signs of the power of God, the work of the prophets of old. And here they are healing so extravagantly and powerfully that even Peter's shadow can heal them. These early believers were held in high esteem. But there was also fear. None of the rest dared join them, it says in verse 13. There was a fear barrier in their hearts to full entry. What were the people afraid of? Some think it was fear of the authorities. But I don't think that persecution from the authorities was the problem here. Because in verse 26, it seems pretty clear that the authorities are afraid of the people at this point and not the other way around. The people, it seems, would stone them for interfering with the apostles' activity. So why did the rest of the people not dare join? Why were they afraid? Well, where was the last time in Acts that we smelled fear? It's close. Actually, right behind us here in chapter 5, right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, these two members of the church, Ananias and Sapphira, had lied to the apostles and the whole church, even it says to the Holy Spirit of God. They made pretenses about their own righteousness before God and men by making a display of extravagant giving, declaring they had given all when actually they had held back for themselves. They were double-minded, hypocrites, seeking the praise of men rather than of God. And God, exposing their lie through Peter, struck them dead, right there in public in the sight of church. And verse 11 adds, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You see, that episode with Ananias and Sapphira said something significant about the church, that the church is a place of purity and repentance. The one who harbored a sin, who pretended to be what she was not, who lived in hypocrisy, she would not be at home there. She would not last there. She would be exposed there. She might even die there. So, none of the rest dared join them. Instead, they held back. They held on to their sin. And this is where the tragedy comes in. The good works of Christians displayed to the world are not the best thing. No, in fact, they are by themselves not really good at all for their admirers. 
because all who held back, who dared not join them, remained, admirably yours, dead in their sins. I address this to you, my friend, who has come here tonight, who still holds back, who dares not join the faith through repenting and believing and being added to the Lord. Perhaps your friend, a church member, whom you admire for his exemplary life, has brought you here. Or perhaps you have a liking for the benefits of religion. You think its charities are good, its community has benefits, its morals and discipline and politics are profitable. And I hope that all those things are so. But I challenge you, my friend, you who have not repented and trusted in Jesus, those benefits are estimable things, but they are for you as passing and as fleeting as Peter's shadow. Even if we could heal you, you will one day lose that renewed health and die in your sin. Friend who holds back, instead of admirable things, what we really have for you are the words of this life, as it says in verse 20. The words that would give you eternal life. And what words are those? Look no further than our own chapter in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his right hand, as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is as succinct of an expression of the good news of Jesus Christ as you get. But there is eternity locked in these words. The problem you and I have is that we need forgiveness. We need eternal forgiveness. All of us, made in God's image, made with an eternal soul, have wrecked that beautiful image with our hypocritical lives. That wreckage brings wrath. The wrath of a just and holy maker who designed all to be perfect even as he is perfect. So the wrath of God remains on us and forgiveness we need, but forgiven we are not without the shedding of pure and innocent blood. God is holy and just and wrathful, but in equal measure he is full of love, rich in mercy, pouring out grace. Instead of condemning all of humanity to die in our sin, God sent his perfect son, Jesus, to shed his perfect blood, to pay the condemnation penalty sinners deserve. And this Jesus now in sovereign authority with God, gives repentance and faith, trust, and forgiveness to all who believe. Jesus is the Savior who would reconcile all of us who have for too long dared not join him. His is the name and the power and the spirit that grants us the grace to renounce our sin and come out of the shadows into the life. These are the words of this life. For you who dares not join us, now is the day. Repent and believe and enter into the light of life with those who believe in his name. But for all who shrink back, who dares not join the people of God with faith and repentance, there remains only a fearful expectation of judgment. Then, as now, there is a great tragedy for the admirer only 
of Christians. Tragically, Christians are merely popular. But these tragic admirers who dared not join are not the only ones in Jerusalem who refused the call to repent and believe in the name of Jesus. There is another group, also tragic, yet apparently more desperate. Our second point is that tragically, Christians are unpopular. Tragically, Christians are unpopular. We focus here on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, or the Senate, as it is called in verse 20, was the ruling council of the Jews, made up mostly of Levites, the priests, and the high priest, together with the teachers of the law and the scribes and the other elders of the people of Israel. And there are two key factions within the council. There are the Sadducees, to which the high priest and many of the Levites belonged. They ran the temple and governed the ritual practices and sacrifices. And uh, by the words of the law, they were the mediators of repentance and forgiveness between God and man. The chief priest was like a religious head of state at this time. He and the other priests had also colluded with Rome to maintain and even enhance their leadership over the Jewish nation. And then there are also the Pharisees, a minority on the council whom we know well from the Gospels. That was the Sanhedrin, the Senate and the people, Sadducees and Pharisees together. And this rambunctious Senate agreed upon one thing important. They hated the name Jesus, the name by which Israel might be saved. You see, to these rulers, the specific issue with the Christians was not the miracles they were performing. That much was clear to both the council and the apostles. Back in chapter 4, their first question to Peter and John was not, what have you done? Like, how dare you heal this guy who has been lame his whole life? But rather, in chapter 4, verse 7, it says, by what power or by what name did you do this? The healings performed by the apostles were not an end in and of themselves. Rather, the miracles were a sign. They pointed to the substance of the matter, the power behind the action, namely, the name of Jesus as the Christ. So the issue for the council is not the sign, but the significance of the sign. Read now in chapter 5, verse 28. The very first thing the high priest says is, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. The miracles are passed over. That's not their issue because they were a proxy and they knew it. They were a companion to the preaching of the name of Jesus. And that is the consistent pattern in Acts. If there was a miracle, then there was preaching that followed. The point was the preaching. The miracle was merely a signpost. And the issue is, therefore, the name of Jesus. And the high priest can barely conceal his hatred of this. He cannot even mention the name of Jesus. He just says, this name or this man in a kind of derision. So why this great hatred of the name? Well, verse 17 tells us that the main driver was their jealousy. But jealous of what? What did they lack or stand to lose? Well, for one, one thing the apostles have that these secular leaders do not is popularity. Christians are popular. They're held in high esteem, we saw. 
Much the opposite for these leaders. From verse 26, we see that in a popularity contest between the Sadducees and the apostles, the Sadducees get stoned. But their jealousy goes deeper than that. The Sadducees sense a serious threat to maintaining their authority. Yes, the law of Moses gives them authority, and yes, Rome's Rome's legions give them authority. But here, in the very seat of their authority, the temple grounds, they have direct defiance and are even accused of murder. They complain to the apostles in verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and all the apostles come straight back at the council. That's because you're not in charge anymore. And yep, you did kill him. Read with me in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. But the apostles say more than that. Not only has the council positioned itself against God, who sent these apostles to preach specifically in the temple grounds, but the apostles explain why the council's authority itself is now over. Look at the careful language there, beginning in verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The Sanhedrin has heard this before. In fact, they heard it directly from Jesus' lips when he told them while on trial that their actions in condemning him to death, death would trigger the end of their authority and the consummation of the Christ's. So hold a finger here in Acts 5 and turn back to Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, maybe a year or so, these events in Acts 5, we have Jesus arrested and put on trial before the very same assembly. So let's read now in Luke 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led Jesus away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What Jesus asserts, what he warns, is that the fulfillment of the old Levitical role of priests has come. And this, at this juncture in redemptive history, the mediatory power and religious authority of the Levites, the chief priests and the Sadducees, is fully ended. The Levitical priests, as a class, no longer speak for God. They no longer rule the religious life with God's authority. Instead, Jesus, the Christ, has taken that authority now and forever as God's Son, as the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice once and for all on behalf of his people. This is the central argument of the letter to the Hebrews, I'll read for you a section there you don't have to turn in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that is, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need, like those Levitical priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. The Levites had a priestly role that, while important, was only a shadow of the perfect reality to come in Jesus. And so Jesus, when on trial, tells the Sanhedrin that their use of their authority to condemn him will actually be the very means to end their priestly authority and place it all on the Christ as both perfect priest and perfect sacrifice in one. So switching back to Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter and the apostles are making crystal clear to the Sanhedrin and to us that these priests, these Sadducees, this high priest has lost all of his original authority. All of that now vests perfectly in Jesus. He sits at the right hand of power. He is the leader and the savior. He is the one who mediates repentance toward God and forgiveness of sins. I mean, look at that job description in chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus sits in the place of authority. He's leader. He's savior. He mediates repentance and forgiveness. Until now, whose job had that been? Or who at that moment in that room, is pretending to fulfill that job description. It is the Sadducees themselves, the high priest. So the chief priests are being told by Peter and the apostles, their authority is over. And indeed, even the people now refuse them. So they have grown vehemently jealous. And their jealousy boils over. Literally, in the Greek there, in verse 33... It says it splits them open with rage. And this is utter tragedy for these rulers of Israel. They stood face to face with the Savior who could grant them forgiveness and repentance, who could lead them to eternal life. And now that same council of rulers stands face to face with a dozen of Jesus' followers who proclaim the very same good news. They stand with messengers who would heal them And yet they only harden their hearts, even plotting their murder. Christians are deeply, tragically unpopular. This takes us to our third point, which is that, joyfully, Christians preach. The apostles have declared to the Levitical council of Israel that they're, uh, to their face, that they no longer serve or sit under its authority. Jesus, the true and better priest, the Christ, has taken that role. But we have to ask, how then do they serve this new leader? Let's look there in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. So they stand under the Christ's authority by obeying God and not men. But let's be very careful to understand what is and what is not the direct command of God that they have to obey. And I stress this because this verse, verse 29, is often taken by those seeking all kinds of civil disobedience or even rebellion against human authority. From the American Revolution to opposition to mask mandates, whatever we might say about obedience to man and obedience to God in those contexts, those questions are not what is in view here. We should be very careful how we interpret this verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. We do not want to be found disobeying God, however, 
by disobeying men in things God actually commands us to obey them in. Because here, in Acts chapter 5, the specific command for obedience is very clear. Look there in verse 20, the words of God's angel. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all these words of this life. And this command is only a pointed reminder of a command given by Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, You, apostles, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The apostles have a clear command from Jesus and a reminder from his angel here to speak the words of this life. This is how you witness This is how you speak, you teach, you preach, you evangelize, you proclaim the words of this life, the name of Jesus as the Christ. That is the command that they must obey. So preach, Christian, preach. That is the command. And the preaching is specifically what the Sanhedrin has prohibited from back in chapter 4. So with that diametrical opposition, God says preach. And the Sanhedrin says don't preach, the apostles have chosen whom they will serve. And so what do the apostles do? They preach. And oh, do they preach and preach and preach? Let's add it up. After preaching in chapter 4, and then arrest, and then an arrest, and then more preaching, Jerusalem, it says in chapter 5, has become filled with their teaching. But the apostles keep teaching and preaching until they are arrested again in verse 18. Then they're released at midnight And as the sun rises the next day, they start preaching. About 12 hours after their last arrest, they are arrested again. And what are the charges? Unauthorized preaching. They are interrogated before the council. How do they respond? They preach to them. They proclaim the name of Jesus and what he did. He died to bring repentance and forgiveness to Israel. Then they're threatened and beaten as if that would shut them up. But no, they go away, bleeding and praising the name of God for suffering for the name that they have been preaching. They preach even in their pain and suffering and with joy, it says. Look there in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then finally, do they call in sick and sore with a sore back the next day? No, it says in verse 42, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They are fixated on the preaching of God's word. Every day, at every place they have a hearing, they obey the command of God and therefore they preach. Brothers and sisters, this command to go and preach is not exclusive to these 12 apostles. Through the rest of the New Testament, you see all church members preaching. This may be easier to see if you interchange the word preach with evangelize or proclaim the good news, as the word really means in Greek. Christians proclaim the good news. All members proclaim the good news. So just by way of example, we see that deacons preach, and not this deacon, but Stephen, in the very next chapter, starts preaching. We also see that wives preach. Think of Priscilla with her husband Aquila proclaiming the truth to their friend Apollos in Acts chapter 18. You see businesswomen preach. 
Think of Lydia, who brings the good news to her whole working household in Acts chapter 16, along with Paul. You hear of fathers preaching. Think of Philip, the evangelist, who's preached to his daughters such that even they have grasped the faith and uniquely they prophesy in chapter 21. And even the bodyguards preach. Think of those saved and discipling in the Praetorian Guard in Rome that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 1. The rich and the poor and the slave and the free, they all proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ to those around them. And preaching is not exclusive, and this is important for you, church, it is not exclusive to this pulpit. Uh, This wooden box is the main forum for our gathered congregation and visitors for preaching, and we give it a special place. But the proclamation of the good news happens in all kinds of contexts, at your dining table, over coffee with your boss or your employee, or the church visitor you just met this morning. It happens with the people you serve and with the people who serve you. So I ask you, Christian, do you preach? Do you proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ? Do you? If you do, or if you don't, I encourage you, Christian, to ask yourself, whom do you know who would give you a hearing? Ask God that he would give you an opportunity, and boldness. And then trust his spirit that your witness and his would accomplish the ends for which your preaching has been determined. Because God has ordained that this means, the proclamation of the name of Jesus as the Christ, is the means he intends to use, the specific purpose of the church and its people for witnessing to his name. So our third point is, joyfully, Christians preach. It's what we do. But we ask, to what effect? Why preach? Which brings us to our final point. We preach because sovereignly God saves. Sovereignly God saves. Now Luke zeroes in on a speech here in verses 34 through 39 by a leading member of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel. He uses Gamaliel's speech to ask the key question of our chapter. Are these Christians, is this movement, is the message of the good news of Jesus merely human or irresistibly divine? Gamaliel essentially asks, who done it? Now, Gamaliel was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. He was very influential in his day on the Sanhedrin, and he's actually well-known among scholarly Jews today because he's spoken of very highly in their traditional writings. We also know from Acts 20 that Gamaliel has a soon-to-be very famous young disciple, one Saul of Tarsus, a student who apparently does not take his teacher's advice to stay away from these Christians. So Gamaliel takes the mic there in verse 35, and he reminds the council of two events that they would have known about, two uprisings, one of a man named Theudas, or Thaddeus, uh, whose dates we do not know, But he was followed by another, uh, one Judas the Galilean, uh, whom we understand uh, led his revolt around 6 AD. So this is happening maybe 25, 30 years before Gamaliel's speech. Now the careers of these two men followed a clear pattern, one after the other. They rose up. They pretended to be someone they were not, a new leader, a messiah. 
they drew a small following, they were killed, and their movement scattered and went away. And, as the narrative shows, the memory of these past uprisings and uh, their failure drives home Gamaliel's point, which he sets up as a kind of test to interpret the current events. The test is, if the movement goes away on the death of the leader, then God was not behind it. But if the movement takes root, then God is behind it. Now, this seems like sage advice, and it contains a general principle here that is true, that whatever God has chosen to bring about will come about. But there is a limit to this advice. Just because something endures does not mean that it is aligned with God's holy purposes. Think of Islam or Mormonism, two big examples of God-ordained movements that are actually contrary to his will. But there is also a surprising irony in Gamaliel's speech. You see, didn't Gamaliel and the council realize that the Jesus movement had already passed his test with flying colors? Like Theudas and like Judas, the leader of this movement, Jesus, has been killed now perhaps a year ago. And when he was killed, he was alone, abandoned by his own followers and rejected by all men. End of movement, right? But here we are, after the death of Jesus, and what do we have? We have not one leader, but 12, defiant and clearly supernaturally empowered. And we have a church of tens of thousands, not off in the countryside somewhere, but meeting in the very temple of God. And more than this, the whole capital city is filled with their teaching. Even the people from New Jersey and Long Island are coming in to get in on it. They want more miracles. Some might want more preaching. Doesn't this council realize that the results are in from Gamaliel's test? And the test is positive. The divine presence has been detected. It endures. Well, it seems that the same God who so easily walked Jesus of Nazareth in a kind of anti-miracle, that same uh, out of those who were persecuting him, as we saw this morning, that that same God also walked these apostles the night before right out of a locked prison and apparently right in front of the prison guards without their noticing, and that he has here again through his sovereign power walk these 12 apostles right past the wrathful intentions of the men in the Sanhedrin, and even the wise and observant Gamaliel himself. Well, it doesn't say what everyone's thinking when they let them go. They decide not to kill the apostles, but they proceed to threaten and then beat them. So sort of neither here nor there on Gamaliel's advice. But here you see a central theme of the book in Acts. Through a pattern of preaching, followed by both conversions and persecution, you see the visible and invisible power of God to save through sovereignly sustaining and, and, and empowering the proclamation of his name. God sovereignly saves. Our chapter both hints at this and drives it home very profoundly. So look back in verse 14. The apostles are carrying on their ministry of preaching, which is accompanied by miracles, and it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Note how Luke explains this passively. He speaks to believers being added to the Lord. So we've been discouraged since grammar school 
not to be caught using the passive voice. But Luke wants to plant the seeds of the question, who is doing the adding? Is it man or is it God? Then in verse 19, a visible power bursts on the scene. An angel sent from the Lord frees the apostles from prison so that the words of this life may be proclaimed. The Lord is clearly on the move, and he uses his power to sustain the preaching. God sovereignly sends and sustains his preachers. But still, who is doing the adding to the Lord? Who is doing the saving? Is it just men, or is it God? So then in verse 30, with like the force of a thunderclap, the apostles drive home the answer for the Sanhedrin and for us. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and to give forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So God, in the persons of his trinity, is magnificently, irresistibly at work to save sinners from their sins. God ordained the life and priestly ministry of Jesus, his son, culminating in the atonement sacrifice at his death for the salvation of his people. And then God vindicated the sacrifice, he raised Jesus, and he crowns him with all authority on heaven and on earth to forgive sins. And Peter's speech stresses repentance is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. And Jesus is the giver. And then God, who orders his witnesses to the end of the earth, steals them with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the name of Jesus so that through the hearing of the preaching, preached, Israel will be saved. So is this movement of man or is this movement of God? Does salvation come by the choice of man or does it come by the power of God? Well, the message of the scriptures the historical record, the the miracles, the preaching, the popularity and unpopularity drive home the point that God sovereignly saves through the preaching of his word. And no one can resist it. Thank God for his salvation to us. So I want to conclude with a very simple application. Take courage, my friend. Take courage when you proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and your friends admire you but say, that's nice, just not for me, or when they despise you for it and reject you for his name being on your lips and in your life, take courage. What you have and what will be is of God and not of man. God sovereignly saves both you and all those to whom he gives through his Holy Spirit, the gift of repentance and forgiveness of sins. We can trust him. Let's pray. God, we rely on you uh, through, through our feeble words to accomplish your purposes. And we thank you that you give us the opportunity to speak those words, the glories of the risen Christ, Jesus, 
and it's in his name that we appeal to you uh, for the fruit of these proclamations. Amen.